The end run is full inclusion, right? It's welcoming into your schools, into your communities, into your home, into your families, into your workplace. That's the sweet spot. That's what Special Olympics is trying to achieve. And unified sports helps that happen. And uh, we've seen it everywhere we go. From Front Office Sports, it's Office Hours, a show where we take you inside the minds of some of the most influential names in the sports industry to break down where things have been and where they are going. Before we get to today's episode, here's a quick word from our sponsor, Bitrix. New crypto traders have a wide range of options when it comes to selecting tokens, and the same is true for the trading platform they choose to operate on. There are many factors to consider when deciding on a platform, like token selection, trading features, and trade execution speed. But perhaps the most important is security. Bitrix stands above the competition as the most reliable trading platform and sets the standard for security and convenience in the crypto space. Its innovative solutions offer best-in-class asset protection without making compromises on trade, execution, or flexibility. As part of an industry that hinges on security and accountability, Bitrix is committed to protecting its customers in every part of their crypto trading journey. Bitrix respects its users' trust in the platform and rewards that trust with an ever-expanding list of features and functionalities designed to improve their experience. To learn more about our technology and why Bitrix is the superior choice for keeping your crypto secure, visit www.bitrix.com. Again, visit www.bitrix.com. That's B-I-T-T-R-E-X.com. I'm Adam White, and on today's episode, we're joined by two-time Olympic gold medalist Bart Connor. Connor is the only American male gymnast to win gold medals at every level of national and international competition. In the fall of 1976, Connor moved to Norman, Oklahoma to attend the University of Oklahoma and to be coached by Paul Ziert. While at OU, Connor earned 14 NCAA All-America honors and led his team to two NCAA titles. In 1991, Connor was inducted into the U.S. Olympic Hall of Fame, and in 1997, he was inducted into the International Gymnastics Hall of Fame. After graduating with a degree in journalism in 1984, Connor went into business with Zert. Today, they own several gymnastics-related business interests, including the Bart Connor Gymnastics Academy, International Gymnast Magazine, and Grips Etc., a gymnastics supply company. When Bart's not working at the gym or working on his other gymnastics-related businesses, he's an ESPN TV color commentator, a public speaker, and is deeply invested and involved with Special Olympics. I mean, look, how is the, I mean, I guess we can get right to it, but how has the last 60 or 90 days been for, for you? Obviously, this has been an interesting time and, you know, you have the Olympics being pushed back till next year, gymnastics, you're a gym, gym owner. How has it just been kind of weathering the, weathering the storm? Well, you know, it's been disruptive for everybody and, and uh, what, what, what's the cliche that uh, we're all in the same storm, but we're all not necessarily in the same boat. So Yeah, exactly. We're doing the best we can. Um, yeah, just about everything that I do has been shut down. And uh, so we're slowly kind of re recalibrating and retooling and sort of rebuilding for the future. But it was a bit of a shock because I work at ESPN and from January through the end of April, we're just working every weekend covering women's college gymnastics. And then all of a sudden the SEC championships were going to be in front of no audience. And then a day later they were canceled and then the NCAA championships were canceled. And it was extremely disruptive. My heart breaks for those athletes who 
you know, were trying to finish out their collegiate careers and didn't really get a proper ending. And, and then, of course, as we've seen, the dominoes continue to fall with the Olympics, and, and that's been hugely disruptive. My wife, Nadia Komenich, and I would have been over in Tokyo working as broadcasters and with some of the sponsors and some of our relationships there. So all of that got, you know, put to the side. So, um, uh, and our business, you know, we run a gymnastics school with 1,200 students, and we close for a couple of months. And we're slowly kind of rebuilding that business. We're up at about 30% capacity right now, which is what we feel like we can safely do, keeping children social distances, all the coaches wearing masks, taking temperatures every day, and doing the best we can. You know, everybody's in this together, and we're all just trying to do our part. So, yeah, it's been hugely disruptive in sports, as you know. And uh, But, you know, I keep thinking, uh, you know, uh, let's use this opportunity to recalibrate a little bit and rededicate ourselves to being the the best in class. And uh, I'd like to think that when this is all said and done, we come out on the other side that we're somehow better for it. So that's kind of how we're approaching this. Yeah, I agree. And I think many businesses have kind of taken that approach. I know we personally have where it's like we took a step back and we figured out, you know, hey, look, these are the things we need to focus on. This is what we should be focusing on. When all things are going well, you know, you tend to look over the things that aren't performing well or whatever. But when things aren't going well, you have to take a step back and you're like, all right, let's just focus on the key things. So hopefully it's uh, something similar across the board. And like you said, we're we're better off for it. But as a, you know, as a former Olympian yourself, how do you how do you even quantify something like that? I don't, I don't even think this is something that many of us have ever really experienced in any type of a setting. Obviously, it's a, you know kind of a once-in-a-lifetime thing. But for people who are preparing for the Olympics, especially uh, gymnastics as, as it is, like, how do you how do you take it? How do you come back from this? Is it is it that disruptive to where you feel like some people may not participate next year? What do you think that like whole conversation has been like for some of the athletes and uh, who who are looking forward to to Tokyo and, and now have to wait an extra year? Well, it's very complex for sure, Adam. Um, I had something, uh, it's not the same, but in a way it is similar in some respects because I was a 1976 Olympian and I was a world champion in gymnastics in 1979 and planning on going to the 1980 Olympics, which were going to be in Moscow. And those Olympics, as you might remember, were boycotted. And um, it was unbelievably disruptive for us because, you know, as an athlete in a sport like mine, I mean, the dates that you circle on your calendar with a Sharpie are the Olympic dates and the cities where you're going and that's how you build your life. And everything is, you know, calibrated around being a maximum potential and, uh, and perfect condition to have a chance to win Olympic medals. And when that's all sort of pulled out from in underneath you, it's, it's pretty disheartening. So there were about 460 U.S. athletes that didn't get to go in Moscow. And uh, I was still young enough that I thought, well, I could probably stick around for four more years. And so I continued to train for the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles, where things worked out well for me. But I have to say it was devastating for many athletes who that was going to be their one and only shot at the Olympics. And, and it wasn't able to happen. So um, I know several of the gymnasts in particular, some of the OU, University of Oklahoma gymnasts were working out in my gym because the OU was closed. And uh, in March, and uh, they were working out in our gym when uh, we got the notification that the Olympics were going to be postponed. And, you know, at first it's devastating. These guys were just like shocked. And then 
most of them quickly sort of said, wait a minute, here's one year to get better. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll be better a year from now and here's an opportunity to do it. So, you know, I think for every athlete, it's a bit of a different situation for some of the younger athletes. They're thinking, can I hang on for one more year? You know, somebody like Simone Biles, who is, you know, this just gymnastics phenom. And she's, yeah. she was really planning on being done with her gymnastics and, and retiring, you know, at the, at the end of the Olympics this summer. And she's had to, so can, can I, can I hang on for one more year? And I, I guess she will, but it's also some changes in our sport because uh, age eligibility is a big deal in gymnastics. You have to be at least 16 in the calendar year of the Olympics. And uh, there are some athletes that are not age eligible for the 2020 Olympics, but will be age eligible next year. So there are some athletes that, you know, are pretty solid spot on the Olympic team if they picked it today. But guess what? When next calendar year comes around, there's a whole bunch of 15 year olds turning 16 in women's gymnastics that make it a little more complicated. So it, it, it's going to be intense and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's unfortunate. I mean, my heart goes out to these athletes and this is, uh, this is really disruptive, but, um, you know, I mean, the whole world is in this together and people are dying. So, you know, people putting their Olympic aspirations to the side for a little while seems like a, a minor price to pay considering, you know, that this is a global pandemic and, and hundreds of thousands of people have died. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think, I think it's if and when the Olympics are able to come back, I feel like it's going to be just like, it's going to be even more powerful, right? Like it's obviously already a unifying moment, but at some point when, when Olympics and, you know, hopefully in 2021, they can come back. I just feel like it's, it's going to be even more powerful uh, coming out of all of this than, you know, really probably ever, ever would have thought. I sure hope so. From a from I guess a business perspective too. Obviously, we're talking about just the competitive side of things, but a lot of these gymnasts, you know, most of their money is tied up into sponsorships. Most of their money is tied up into you know a lot of these other types of things and, and participating. How have you heard or you know had some conversations around just like how some of these gymnasts and Olympians are kind of even faring from from that perspective? I'm assuming it's again not only tenuous on their training, but that as well. You know, one thing that's a little bit deceiving about the Olympics, and sometimes I think the media throws this out of proportion, is there's actually very few Olympic athletes in Olympic sports who make a decent living doing what they do. Um, You know, there's Michael Phelps and Simone Biles and Missy Franklin and people like that, that that they are the, you know, uh, Allison Felix, these, these are the anomalies and that most people are struggling just to get by. And, and many times they're putting their lives on hold and until they can finish their dreams of Olympics and then go on and work in their chosen profession. But um, it's a big pivot for athletes. And uh, I always used to joke that, you know, when I came out of the Olympics in 1984, uh, I was, you know, I was good on the pommel horse and the rings and the floor exercise. But the reality is when you transition to the business world, I, I had this sort of, you know, slap in the face. I was, I had, I was the, one of the world's best in a skill set that has no marketable value. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what, I mean you, Adam, what you mean? The pommel horse doesn't work in a boardroom. Come on, man. No, come on. You know, I mean, it's impressive, you know, for, you know, tricks at parties and stuff, but you know, think about it, Adam, I bet never once in your day, are you thinking, you know what we need over here? we need a guy who can do the still rings. I mean, that's just not something that you think of, right? Yeah. So for athletes, you know, it depends on the sport, obviously, if you're 
think tennis, basketball, you know, baseball, you name it. But but a lot of Olympic sports, whether it's gymnastics or swimming, I mean, the Olympics is it. And so, you know, it's a real bit of a challenge to, uh, I always joke that, you know, no one just gives you money because you have an Olympic gold medal. You have to do something for it. You know, yeah. nobody ever has walked up to me on the street and said, hey, you have two Olympic gold medals. Here's some money. No. <laughs> if only it was that easy. Yeah, for sure. You, you, you have to do something. You have to speak or you have to endorse something or you have to have, you know, you have to bring some value to the table. And that's a bit of a shift for a lot of athletes. I remember one of my friends was Olympic swimmer, Rowdy Gaines, and, and Rowdy's the same age as me. And he goes, you know, I've been staring at the bottom of a pool for 18 years. And now I'm supposed to jump out of the pool and be a spokesperson and give speeches and do television. And everybody expects me to be able to do that. But that's not what I'm trained to do, you know. So, um, you know, most of us, I think there is that little, there's that party period for a year and a half or so after the Olympics where there's shows and appearances and speeches and things. But I think the trick for most athletes is to figure out a way to transition into a sustainable uh, way of making a living because you know you can do a lot of parades and banquets and stuff but that that runs pretty thin after a while you have to figure out you know what can I do to contribute to my you know my interests and uh, and make a, a sustainable living so but there's no real path to follow in many of these sports if you're a badminton player I mean where do you go right so Obviously, gymnastics, I had the knowledge, and with my former coach, Paul Zer, who's really a business uh, visionary, we, we opened up the Barcona Gymnastics Academy, and we started building that, and then as we started getting stable with that, we moved on to take on an international gymnast magazine, which was in California. My background is journalism and public relations, so I wanted to be involved in that, and I always wanted to be one of the television commentators, so I worked for ABC and ESPN and some others, and um, so... I really quickly tried to pivot into some things where I could take the skills and, and the assets that I had from my sports experience and, uh, and translate them into a way to make a living. Yeah, no, I mean, obviously the, the big idea now is that you have all these athletes who are, who are looking at business or becoming businessmen, especially in these more mainstream sports. Someone like Shaq has made it cool to be oh, something, yeah. you know, more than an athlete, right? The whole idea of LeBron and these, uh, but you make a good point, right? The Olympics, it's a, it's a very different type of type of ball game, right? Where it's, there's not nearly as like, there's not nearly as many people who do uh, still rings as there are who play basketball. So being even a coach for that or something like that is yeah, and even different. endorsing products. I mean, yeah. how many products do I use that, you know, you might be interested in, you know, you need the hand guards or the wristbands or the tumbling shoes, you know, yeah. or a, a pommel horse. I mean, <laughs> you know, so, you know, they're very sports specific, what the opportunities are or the lack of opportunities. So yeah, it's a big, it's a big challenge. And, uh, but most athletes, I think many of them start to see that late in their career that they're going to have to pivot into something where they can actually make a living and, and hopefully they find areas where they can make a contribution and, uh, and that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm thrilled to be talking to you today, because I transitioned into supporting nonprofits. And, you know, I've been a longtime supporter of Special Olympics, and, and that has provided a scaffolding and a, and, a, and a foundation for me to have just great, great experiences, great success, and also feel like uh, I'm translating the value and some of the things I can bring to the table and try to help people in, in, in a positive way. No, I love it. Uh, and I think it's, it's good to see that you've, you've transitioned and hopefully are, are not even just transition for yourself, but transition for others. And the fact that you kind of are showing a way of that, Hey, look, this is what you can do. What was, uh, 
was like the first couple years post the Olympics like for you? I'm sure there was a lot of ups and downs trying to find yourself what it was going to be, what you wanted to do. Like what take us through that? Yeah, I think the whole time you're you're you know we were lucky because we performed in some professional gymnastic shows and I had a few endorsements where I had to make appearances and sign autographs and a lot of corporate speeches and you know they're very lucrative and that's really fun and that but but you got to also realize that that's going to run its course and so um, I started connecting with some nonprofits and I had a thrilling call one day when I was uh, I had just come out of the Olympics and I got a call from Eunice Kennedy Shriver who. Uh, had founded Special Olympics in her backyard. And of course, in 1968, they had the groundbreaking first Special Olympics World Summer Games in uh, the Chicago Stadium, uh, Soldier Field. And, um, you know, she was, you know, using sports as a way to, you know, change perceptions for the possibilities of people with intellectual disabilities. And uh, she called me, she said, you know, we're going to do a big celebration event in New York at the United Nations. We're going to celebrate the growth of Special Olympics we'd love you to consider being there and meeting the athletes and supporting what we're doing. And I'd already been coaching Special Olympics athletes for four or five years prior to that. And I said to her, I said, I'd, I'd be thrilled to help, but you know, I'm actually gonna be in Zimbabwe that week. I'm gonna go down there to do some gymnastic clinics and seminars. And she goes, oh, do you know President Mugabe? And I'm like, no, I'm a gymnast, I do not know heads of state. And she says, well, we don't have Special Olympics in Zimbabwe yet. Will you help us start a program out while you're there? And I'm like listening to, you know, Eunice Kennedy Shriver, the sister of John F. Kennedy. Yeah. And here I'm calling with regrets that I can't make her PR event in New York. And she figured out a way I could help her. Now that's leadership. That's awesome. And so I, uh, while I was there, I met with special education teachers, some coaches, some family members, some athletes, uh, adaptive PE teachers, a sponsor, the minister of sport. And within a few weeks, they had Special Olympics Zimbabwe. And uh, so to me, I learned something really profound. And that's great leadership. You talk about business leadership, you know, immediately when I was calling with regrets that I couldn't come to her PR event, she figured out a way I could help her. I'm like, this is this is a rock star of a woman. So I learned so much from Eunice Kennedy Shriver and, and her passion for using sports as a tool for social change and and changing perceptions about people with intellectual disabilities that, that to me and changing and eliminating stereotypes that that to me was something I really wanted to hang on to so that's given a lot of guidance to me in my career because not only have we tried to build a business but we've also tried to do it with in a socially responsible way who who can who can benefit from the knowledge that I have and some yeah. of the experiences that I have and and that's what led me to Special Olympics. No, that's awesome. I think uh, I spent a few days and a few weeks, honestly, over the course of my high school career, I think, um, you know, volunteering with Special Olympics, and there's really nothing like it, you know, and then when we were doing elementary school, or, um, you know, Little League Baseball, we had, you know, things that we did with Special Olympics, and it's really just, it's so pure, it's the love for the game, and the love for sport, yeah. and just everyone as a, as a whole, the the companionship, the, um, you know, the sportsmanship, it's, there's, again, yeah. I, there's like nothing that beats it. And I think, you know, most recently I was at a special Olympics, uh, hockey tournament, a floor hockey tournament in New York before everything right. was shut down. And, and the, these people and everyone, like they're athletes, they're such amazing athletes oh, and it's so amazing to see them. And I, it, it just really is. It's, it's so, so cool. Like you said.
You know, in, in 1979, I was invited at University of Central Oklahoma to uh, do a little clinic with six athletes. And it was outdoors. It was got to be 100 degrees. We had like two mats. And, and I got there and there were six athletes that were, you know, out of shape and gymnastics was going to be a stretch for them. And I remember teaching these athletes forward rolls, you know, really rudimentary things. But the joy and the look of accomplishment just changed how I thought about the whole world. And I kept thinking, look at these amazing athletes and the gifts that they have. They're, they're recalibrating how I think about human potential. And to me, it was profound. It was like everybody deserves a chance to play. Everybody deserves a chance to be invited to the party. And everybody deserves a chance to experience success. And so that really, really sort of changed how I thought about human potential. And yeah. I've, I've often looked back to that moment. And, you know, I, we, we are all great fortunate to have gifts. But who's to decide whose gifts have more value. Yeah. I have a friend from Chicago, very successful businessman, and he has a son with intellectual disability. And my friend is a little bit introverted and he's a little bit sometimes um, awkward in social conversation, but he's enormously successful in business. But he envies his child with an intellectual disability because his child connects with people like he can't. Yeah. And here's a guy who on paper is a rock star of a businessman, but he is envious of his child with special needs because his special needs son has a gift of connecting with people that is way more profound than this gentleman can do on his own. And that sort of helped me sort of, you know, bracket this. Think about like, we all are grateful for the gifts we have, but who's to decide whose gifts have more value. And so I have seen the transformative power of Special Olympics. And I've been all over the globe. I mean, when we first took the Special Olympics out of Ireland, out of the United States in 2003, we went to Dublin, Ireland, and they didn't have a very welcome heart to people with disabilities prior. Well, after those games were over, and we're talking, you know, what is that, 17 years ago, that Special Olympics World Games in Dublin has had a transformative effect on that country. I've been many times to Ireland, and they yeah. often say that's one of their proudest moments. I've seen it in Nagano, Japan in 2005 when, when children with intellectual disabilities were hidden away and yet now they're center stage. I, I went to India in 2006, and I had parents with tears in their eyes telling me that their child, you know, was ridiculed. And so they were ashamed. So they kept their children locked in the house. And after Special Olympics came to their town, now they're proud to walk down the street with their children. I mean, these are the profound things that, that we have seen. And so we've gone over all over the world. We've been in China, we've been in India, we've been, and now we're going to Russia, which is a huge announcement. We're gonna to go to Kazan, Russia in January of 2022 wow. for the Special Olympics World Winter Games. And once again, another opportunity to change perceptions, break down stereotypes, and hopefully uh, address the barriers to inclusion that people experience in Russia. So we go where we're needed and yep. uh, everywhere we leave, we leave a legacy of a profound change in people's hearts and minds and hopefully also in government in terms of giving more opportunities and uh, opening doors for people with differences. Would you have imagined when you got that call to be to, to lean into a, a head of state that you'd be going to, uh, to Russia? <laughs> 
No, I mean, that's the thing. It's just so, so profound to me that, uh, you know, uh, the connections that I've been able to make and the people that I've been able to connect with. And, and I've, I've often said that I've, I've had business success, but, you know, when I look back at the things that completely fulfill me, I have to say that it's some of the successes that we have uh, experienced with Special Olympics. And, you know, in 2017, we were in Austria for the World Winter Games and ESPN was there in a big way. They see the value of the brand. They see, as you mentioned, Adam, the purity of the sports. Yeah. Then we went to Abu Dhabi in 2019 and it was transformative for the Middle East. And this is a region not necessarily known to be very uh, open uh, to human rights issues. And, uh, you know, these are the things we're going, of course, to Kazan, Russia in 2022, and then we'll be in Berlin for the World Summer Games in 2023. So uh, this started out as a backyard event in Eunice Kennedy Shriver's swimming pool. <laughs> and now it's unbelievable to think there are more than 6 million athletes and over 190 programs around the world. And uh, it has, uh, to me, it has been uh, a passion of mine because the purity of the movement is this it's so simple let's get a ball and let's play together yeah and when you start playing together and surely you experience this when you volunteered in high school you play together and all of a sudden you're connecting and you're yep. fostering a bit of a friendship that you didn't anticipate and all of a sudden you're like hey these folks, yeah, they're a little different than me, but they're cool, right? Yeah. I mean, tell me about your experience in high school. How did it change your perception about people with disabilities? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, for, for me, it was uh, it was middle in high school when we had, I think it was this thing called Miracle League, and I think it was part of a Special Olympics. Right. Um, you know, and it's basically a, a, a baseball league where for people with disabilities, and I played baseball in, in high school and middle school, and it was just like, yeah, like, I, I can't I can't even put it into words because they you got excited about the same thing that they were getting excited about mm -hmm. and you know there's yeah there's people in, in wheelchairs and people who again aren't the same as you in in a, in you know multiple different ways but at that moment you're both playing the same sport thinking about the same thing helping each other accomplish the same goal which is hit the ball run field the ball right and so mm -hmm. um yeah, at that at, during that time, you kind of everything just else goes away, right? And you're just focused on playing baseball, and it doesn't matter what they look like, how they act, whatever it is, right? Just you're just focused on playing baseball, and it's it's like I said, it's a beautiful thing. It's pure. It's what sports are all about at their core, right? It's grabbing a ball and playing and building relationships and building friendships and and building connections over the fact that you are playing right like that this is the state of play i guess and so i loved it and it was just something we always looked forward to as a group and it was it was really fun and then like i said when i was in new york probably uh six months ago eight months ago before everything was you know in the pandemic when we they had the floor hockey tournament again same thing right you're there and it's just it's people who are, are playing floor hockey like i would be playing floor hockey right going in hard into the corners like you know being super competitive wanting to score right. it's, it, there's nothing different right there's nothing different and it's it's as like i said it's just a beautiful thing you know one of the things that's changed over the last 12 or 15 years and this has largely been driven by our chairman of the board timothy shriver who 
is the son of Eunice Kennedy Shriver, is this whole movement towards unified sports. And you may know about this. Unified sports are sports teams made up of athletes with and without intellectual disabilities playing together on the yep. same team. And this has been also transformative in many ways because it fosters a sense of inclusion, acceptance, understanding, and welcome that no other there's very few opportunities where athletes in a Special Olympics can experience this. And so this has been huge and it's a big paradigm shift for the movement because in a way, I mean, sports is the hook, sports is the catalyst to get people together. But the end run is full inclusion, right? It's welcoming into your schools, into your communities, into your home, into your families, into your workplace. That's the sweet spot. That's what Special Olympics is trying to achieve. And unified sports helps that happen. And uh, we've seen it everywhere we go. And you, you, you see the joy, you see the sense of acceptance. And ironically, it's interesting over the last four months, we have all experienced a fair bit of isolation. And I keep thinking about our Special Olympics athletes. This is what they know. Yeah. They are not invited. They are not included. They are not welcomed. And so what is ironic in a way is that right now the Special Olympics athletes, this is their wheelhouse. This is what they know. And we're only experiencing it for the first time. We're being forced to stay home. We're not being allowed to be with our friends. We're not being invited. And so Special Olympians, in a way, uh, they have an advantage. They can be the professors here and help us who are considered so-called normally developing deal with isolation, exclusion. <laughs> you know, that yeah. that's something we're not used to. And yet this is something they experience often. So I keep thinking that it's, it's our Special Olympics friends who might be able to teach us how to cope with this sense of isolation and exclusion that many of us have, have endured the last few months. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, like you said, it's something that hopefully us as a group, everyone as people can learn from and end up better off. But it's, uh, it's you know, it's admirable, the, the work you've done with Special Olympics. It's an amazing program. It's an amazing uh, initiative. It's an amazing company. And it's, it's just so good to, to see to see that growth and continue to see how it's it's globalized and become a true movement, right? It's it's really no longer just a just an organization, but a movement, which is you know not not only virtually impossible to do, but it's super impactful if you can do it. And, and they, I think they pulled off both of it, which is which is really you know again admirable for sure. Thank you, and you're right. You know, you know anybody who's a you know a business person worth worth any uh, uh, anything, you know, they always try to look for the why and 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 you look for you know, where is my sense of fulfillment and, uh, and, and where can I make a difference? And, uh, you know, it's not a charity. That's the cool thing about Special Olympics. I've heard people often say, oh, it's so nice. Yeah. You know, everybody gets a gold medal. I'm like, no, that's not the point. I can't tell you how many times we'd be in a meeting with Eunice Kennedy Shriver early on and she would bang on the table because someone would say, oh, everybody gets a gold medal. She goes, no, that's not how life is. You need to experience the joys of winning if you are the best. You also need to see the disappointment of not achieving your goals so you can go back home and work harder. So she wanted 
Special Olympics to be a microcosm of life. It wasn't a nice program. It was a program that says, you know, let's teach this population how to function and make it in society. And uh, she was adamant about it. So anytime people would say, oh, everybody gets a gold medal, she would go off because that's not what it's about. You need to experience the joy of winning and you need to experience the disappointment of not being at your best and then maybe you'll learn from it so you know there's so many lessons that that apply you know not only to the special olympics athletes but to sports in general to operating a decent business i mean you know it it it's all the same yeah no it's i mean again it's it's what's best uh as humans right like you know what i mean when, mm -hmm. when you're working together and again accomplishing a goal you're you're holding each other accountable you're not you know you're not you know cutting shortcuts anything like that and so yeah i mean if the world was more like special olympics i feel like the world would be a better place but <laughs> i played you know. in a uh, a unified soccer game in 2015 in los angeles we had the world summer games in los angeles in 2015 and uh we had there was a, a full soccer team and we had two players from Special Olympics Pakistan and two players from Special Olympics Romania on my team. These kids were so good. I mean, we were dying. I was I was about ready to puke as these That's this awesome. dude from, you know, Pakistan went around me like I was standing still. And I kept thinking, you know, there's often people say, oh, it's so nice. I'm like, wait a minute, get out there and play with some of these athletes because they're going to kick your butt. And that's also great. That's awesome. Well, let's talk about the, uh, you know, gymnastics as a sport too. Obviously there's been a lot of conversation around the sport. There was the athlete a movie that came out, um, you know, just as a whole, as, as a gymnast, you know, what, what needs to change? How does, how does gymnastics recover? What, uh, what, what's next for the sport? And, and in your opinion, as someone who's, you know, seen the top of gymnastics and, and probably a lot of the lows of gymnastics as well, like, you know, how does it get better from here? Well, Adam, yeah, it's just been heartbreaking to, to hear the stories from these girls and women who were affected uh, by Larry Nassar, the, the doctor that sort of weaseled his way into an abusive situation. And um, yeah, it's been heartbreaking to follow this. I, I watched Netflix A the other day and and uh, it, it's powerful, it's impactful, and um, it's, it's an important reminder of that, uh, you know, these young ladies should have been heard and believed from the beginning. The thing that is horrifying to me are the number of adults who failed these girls and women yeah. along the way. That just blows my mind, whether they were at Michigan State University or USA Gymnastics or the U.S. Olympic Paralympic Committee. I mean, there were so many people along the way who either looked the other way or uh, protected the reputation of adults at the expense of these kids. I mean, there were so many things that went wrong. It's still mind boggling to me that it went on. And for so many years, I don't know if you watched the ESPYs a couple of years ago, but they had about 120 of these women who came on the stage. And one of the women spoke and she said, if one person did the right thing in 1997, when these accusations were made about Dr. Larry Nassar, none of us would be here today. And it was devastating to think that so many people were so protective of their brands, 
uh, protective of adults' reputations that they didn't do the right thing. So all I can hope is that coming out of this, that programs like Safe Sport hopefully will have some teeth. Um, there will be more checks and balances in the system so that these things uh, will be reported. We've all been made mandatory reporters if we are professional members of USA Gymnastics. And there's lots of stipulations around that. So uh, it will be a paradigm shift in all youth sports. And it's necessary because as you've seen, it's not just gymnastics. We've seen, support, we've seen reports of many other sports where these abuses have taken place. And in every case, it's where there's a power imbalance from an adult to a child. And I've always felt in gymnastics, and this is kind of how we built our program, I see a triangle, a triad of constituents. You put the child at the top of the triangle, and on one side of the triangle is the coach, and the other side is the parent. Okay, so there's three people in this triangle, the, the child or athlete, the coach, and the parent. And you need the checks and balances, just like in government. And when that isn't preserved, um, you start breaking down these uh, system. And unfortunately, there was, you know, too many abuses that went on for too long. So uh, heartbroken about it. Um, you know, we as a business, I remember several years ago, I remember talking to our staff and I said, you know, let's just do a review here. Are we the gold standard in our business? Well, we're not putting kids on the Olympic team. That's never really about what we've been about. We have 1,200 kids in our program. We have lots of kids get college scholarship and we're quite proud of that because a college scholarship in reality has a lot more impact on these young people. Sorry, that, I was on mute. Uh, That's crazy to think that the there was, there's that many gymnastics so we've been gyms on in that, that small we, of an we area. We focused on education and safety and background checks. I mean, we started doing that long before it was required, but uh, any quality business would do that, not only because it's the right thing to do because you're working with children, but it's also a competitive advantage. I mean, there's seven gymnastics clubs within 15 miles of here and we're competing against them. And I said, let's be the best at everything. Let's have the cleanest lobby. Let's have the highest certified coaches. Let's have the safety standards that the others yeah. don't necessarily require. And so to me, I saw it not only as the right thing to do, but as a business competitive advantage. That's crazy to think that there was, there's that many gymnastics gyms in that small of an area. There's, yeah, there's, um, I don't know the exact numbers anymore, but um, I believe there's around 4,000 gymnastic schools in the country uh, with just under 5 million kids doing it. And, you know, most people are doing it right. I mean, most gyms do have a very safe, positive, you know, encouraging, nurturing program. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in business. But unfortunately, as it got closer and closer to the top of that pyramid, it got more and more exclusive yeah. and for very few people. And then when they were isolated away from their parents and they were in serious training conditions, that's when the abuses started to happen. And no one stepped forward and said, hey, wait a minute. And unfortunately, the high level coaches were not held accountable and somebody, you know, they were winning gold medals. So, you know, an administrator might have said, well, yeah, we don't want to rock the boat because, you know, 
we're winning all these gold medals. But, you know, now when you look back, you think, what a horrible choice that was uh, at yeah. the expense of these young ladies. So, you know, I hope probably could have won more gold medals. Well, you know, and also and, and, and not have, you know, ruined so many lives of course. along the way. Yeah, it's really, of course. Yeah. That's the most important part. And it's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it was good that it finally came out. It's horrible that it took so long, you know, yeah. and it's, and it's still, it's, it's still going, you know, because yeah, they, of course, uh, USA gymnastics is bankrupt, right? So now their decisions are being reviewed and handled by bankruptcy court. The settlements have not been taken care of. So they have not settled with all these plaintiffs, plaintiffs who, you know, I don't know, there's three, four, 500, I don't even know anymore. And, uh, but all that has to be settled before they can move on. I mean, USA gymnastics, uh, it'd be hard to, to attract a, a high level national or international sponsor with all these uh, black marks. So I got to believe that there's a new leader at USA Gymnastics and uh, I'd like to give her a fair shot. Uh, she comes from the NBA. Her name is Lili Lung. Uh, she's a terrific executive. She was a gymnast in her, when she was a child. And so she knows a little bit about the, the gymnastics world. And so um, you know, I'm keeping my fingers crossed, but, you know, I, I hope that she's the kind of person that could help pull USA Gymnastics out of this, uh, you know, rabbit hole. Yeah, no, it all makes sense. Is, do you think there's a shot that there's a, I mean, I don't think there's another governing body, but like some, they would participate if some, for some reason USA Gymnastics isn't a good spot, like independently? In the Olympics? Well, you know, there's been some talk. Yeah, there's been some talk that, you know, maybe there could be a new national governing body, but that's a really complex thing. Uh, you know, the reality is, is USA Gymnastics, they've replaced almost everybody there. All the leadership is gone. It's a completely new board of directors. They have new bylaws. They, they have rewritten the rules. So, you know, my personal perspective is that you don't have to completely destroy the organization. You just have to change the people. And, yeah. uh, and that's what's happening, I believe, at USA Gymnastics. And a lot of that has happened at the U.S. Olympic Paralympic Committee. But, you know, there's a lot of anger out yeah. there. So, and USA Gymnastics, during this last few years, has made several really unfortunate missteps. And they've been through like four CEOs in like the last two years. That's crazy. Years. So it is crazy. And so I think finally I, I have confidence that they have the right person there, you know, sitting in the CEO spot. And, uh, and I hope uh, give her a fair shot to see if she can help, you know, turn this ship around. Yeah. I mean, that's all you can do, right? That's, uh, that's what you can hope and what hopefully happens in the, in the short and long term. But, you know, as, as you look forward, obviously you've done Everything with ESPN and Fox, Perfect Ten Productions, the business, uh, you know, all the things that you're doing. What's next? What are you excited about? What are you looking forward to outside of coming out of a pandemic in a hopefully better spot? But like, yeah, what's what's next for for you and and the family and kind of just as you uh, as you go forward? Well, it's nice of you to ask, Adam. My wife, of course, Nadia Komenich, uh, you know, one of the most famous gymnasts on the planet. So I like to joke with people that in our house, we have 11 Olympic medals. Of course, nine of them are hers. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully she like, uh, she, uh, you know, flaunts them every once in a while, you know, you know, I'm yeah, the one yeah, who has yeah. nine Olympic medals. You yeah, should be doing well, dishes, like, you-, you know. Yeah. <laughs> if she wants to pull rank, that's that's fine. awesome. Okay that's that. awesome. And then we have a 14 year old son who is just the, the center of our universe. And so, 
but I, I was joking. We had a little bit of a knockdown drag out last night. I'm thinking he's four. He's very 14. Yeah. Right now, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're dealing with that. But, you know, it's interesting. He, he's done every sport. I mean, everything from competitive rock climbing to hockey to snowboarding to skateboarding to BMX. He is a really good athlete. And just a year ago, at 13, he started gymnastics. I was going to say, and I mean, he, he is, comes from a, a pretty good lineage. I would hope he's a good athlete. Well, you know, but here's the thing. It's funny. When he was like an infant, I would bring him into the gym and people would say like, now what would be his Olympic year? And I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> it's not fair. What if he wants to play the violin? Yeah. You know, like, you know, but people just assume because, you know, he's a you know, child of two Olympic champions that, you know, obviously he's going to be a gymnast. And so he kind of, he did it for about a year as a, like a preschooler. And then he did everything but gymnastics. I think he didn't really, I think he got it. I didn't think, you know, kids, they, you know, often sort of, you know, want to not do what their parents do or tell them. So I think he was just rebelling a little bit. And so, but about a year ago, he said, I want to do gymnastics. And interestingly enough, when you start gymnastics at 13, you got to realize that expectations are uh, are different than if you start at you know three years yeah. old so we our expectations are recalibrated because you know he's you know he's several years behind the other kids in his age group but he's having a blast he, he did a front flip with a triple twist the other day on trampoline and and he was proud of that so you know it, that's that's the center of our world now is raising him he's got a dirt bike and a kayak and we go fishing and so you know i'm kind of lucky in a way i'm 62 now i'm you know i'll probably stay involved with our gym till the end of time because it's so much yeah. fun to be with these kids they're just full of joy and and uh, but right now kind of the center of our universe is is raising a teenager and it's taking all our energy of course of course you go from winning gold medals to raising a teenager right that's uh, that's kind of how it works <laughs> you know you know who steven tyler is you know from Arrowhead. yeah I, I saw a funny quote from him many years ago and because he's had he's had lots of kids and grandkids and uh he said one time he said you know your children do not realize you're a rock god. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny because we can't like pull our Olympic card on our, yeah. like, you know, if he's throwing a fit because he doesn't get our math, we, you know, his math assignment, we can't say, Hey, you know, we're like Olympic champions. Don't bother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're the parents. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, look, Bart, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. I really appreciate you joining. Um, and it's, I'm excited to see not only what you guys continue to do with, with your program, but how things come out with uh, the Olympics next year. Hopefully it becomes you know, a really good rallying point for the, for not only the U S but the country and we start to continue to see more progress throughout USAG. Uh, and then obviously on the Special Olympics side, that's uh, that's obviously a really exciting project. And hopefully it continues to to grow both an influence and opportunity across the globe. So, yeah, it's just been... Thank you. Hey, do you do any winter sports? I, 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 I never actually... I, I grew up in Arizona Ski. and lived in Miami okay. for school. So I was never big <laughs> into winter sports. I wish... Okay. Uh, but never was really big into winter sports. I snowboarded once in my entire uh, 18 years in which I lived in New York, or not, not lived in New York, lived in yeah. uh, Arizona, and right. I think I maybe broke my tailbone. I didn't, but it was one of those days <laughs> when I went up on the mountain and I was like, ah, it's snowing, but it's like really hard, and I'd never done this before. And I was like, oh, I've skateboarded. I can freaking uh, snowboard. No, not not the same. <laughs> Well, so so maybe the the Winter Special Olympics in Kazan, Russia, in twenty twenty two. You can start training. There we go. Now. Yeah, I, I mean, you know I think I'm that's thinking, it. But 
But then if you can't make that one, join us in Berlin for the World Summer Games in 2023. And, uh, you know, you, 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 it'll blow your mind yeah. what's happening with Special Olympics. Because like you said, you, you got a chance to volunteer in high school. But when you see what a global juggernaut this has become, I know you'll be quite proud. And, uh, and you'll know you were part of helping that become what it is. That's awesome. Well, hopefully I can, uh, hopefully I can be there. But, yeah, look, thanks again for joining. And uh, looking forward to it. And hopefully uh, – not too much, uh, not too much of the 14s coming for you your way. <laughs> I know when I was 14 that I was, uh, I was a troublemaker. So you know, it's. A... <laughs> I'm pretty sure I was too. <laughs> we all were. We all were. That's just like the terrible twos, terrible 14s. You know how it is. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please remember to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. If you do, make sure to take a screenshot of the rating slash review and share it on social media to get some front office sports swag. We'll see you next time.